You're listening to Murder Not Murdering with Aaron and Autumn, a true crime podcast about murder and murdering. But we are not murderers. Hey, Autumn. Hey. So I'm super excited about this week's episode because I did so much research on this one and it was like the easiest ever for the research. Just the reading portion of it was so enjoyable that I just had such a good time and you'll see why, but it was just, it was really, it's, it's a little bit of a drama love triangle mixed with murder. So it's, it was really fun to read. You're speaking my language. I know. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to jump right in and I'm going to tell you the story of Edith Thompson. So Edith Jessie Graydon was born December 25th, 1893 in Dalston, England. During her childhood, she was described as a talented girl who excelled in dancing, acting, and she was academically bright with a natural talent for arithmetic. Once she left school, she found a job as a bookkeeper for a fabric importer. She quickly established a reputation of being very fashionable and very intelligent. She was promoted many times until she became the chief buyer, making several trips to Paris on behalf of the company. That sounds really, really cool. (laughs) I know. And she was, she was in her early twenties. Like she was killing it. Yeah. Like living the dream for sure. Totally. So in 1909, she met Percy Thompson. He was described as a well-turned out earnest and good natured person. He was a little bit older than her, but they quickly became an item. They both shared a love of theater and dance halls. Though Edith had a love and talent for dancing, Percy was not adventurous in this. He was not very much fun (laughs) in everything. (laughs) That's a bummer. Um, Yeah. They dated for six years and they finally married in 1916 when Edith was 22 years old. As many men were leaving for war, she agreed to marry him. He never ended up serving during World War I because he was deemed unfit to serve. And according to all of my research and testimonies from people, he faked that he had a heart complaint and that's why he couldn't join the effort. He was known to be (laughs) okay. (laughs) He was known to be a cowardly man and boasted about getting out of going to war. It was a bit baffling why Edith would be with him when she was a very attractive woman, super independent, and she was the life of the party. So it just seemed funny that she was with this kind of like cowardly dud. (laughs) It's it's the nicest way I can put it. Percy was also very described as morose and unimaginative. (laughs) Hmm. That was, that was from Edith said he was morose (laughs) and unimaginative. This is really sad for him. (laughs) No, you'll see. Edith never settled into married life. She didn't want children. And again, this is the 1920s and it was the social norm. And for the record, being a parent has no bearing on being a woman or, or your worth in a marriage. So I'm just putting that out there as my own personal PSA. (laughs) (laughs) And I agree with you. (laughs) But she was, she was a super modern woman in the twenties. She never gave up her career. She became the breadwinner of the family She smoked cigarettes, she went to parties and dance halls, and she was a voracious reader, always indulging herself in romance novels and thrillers. She always dreamed of a great love, but was brought down by the humdrum reality of her life with Percy. (laughs) a lot of fun writing this I mean it's it's sad now I'm kind of thinking it's sad for her (laughs) yeah so she became restless And her marriage began to reflect this. It started to decline. Before long, Edith became reacquainted with an old family friend, 18-year-old Frederick Bywaters. He was a school friend of her younger brothers in lodging at her parents' house. 
he had grown into a very handsome young man, and he had become a merchant sailor running away from home at age 15 to actually join the war effort. (laughs) And he had several close calls with German U-boats. He traveled the world to places Edith only dreamt about. There was an immediate attraction between the two of them. Edith went to her parents for dinner every Friday, so they started beginning to spend more and more time together. Her marriage with Percy continued to decline, and it was known that most nights Percy would just get up and go into the other room with a bottle of whiskey rather than spending time with her. Frederick, who I will now refer to as Freddie, offered an escape from all of this, and thus began a very passionate affair. Months after meeting, Edith and Freddie exchanged flirtatious and steamy letters back and forth. Edith would burn. Hold on. <laughs> would burn for him. Okay. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, Aaron, this is a romance novel. It kind of is. Okay. <laughs> Edith would burn his letters after she read them and he kept her safely hidden. She was worried, obviously, that Percy would find them, so she would burn his letters as soon as she got them. Divorce was very difficult back then and not socially acceptable, and so she really couldn't leave the marriage, even though she really, really wanted to. In the summer of 1921, Edith and Percy went on a vacation to the Isle of Wight with her sister Avis and Freddie. At the time, Edith's parents were hoping that Avis and Freddie would begin courting. Avis was interested and no one knew at the time that there was actually a love budding between her sister and Freddie. There are many pictures of them together from that vacation. So I will post those on our Instagram page because you can see the full love triangle in real time. It's crazy. (laughs) Plus, the pictures are just stunning. You know, it's like flappers, 20s. They're laying on the beaches. It's wonderful. I love that. I love it so much. So this is where Edith and Freddie would share their first kiss and where they declared their love for each other on that vacation. And he, so I'm clear, he's still 18, right? He is 18, yes. And she is in her mid to late 20s. So upon their return, Edith encouraged Percy to take Freddie on as a lodger in their home. It was a very common practice at the time, and he agreed. So Percy initially became good friends with Freddie, but that soon became strained. He stayed for only three months. Percy became increasingly suspicious of Edith and Freddie. Tempers began to broil. And on one occasion, Percy actually grabbed Edith by the neck, began hitting her, and he threw her across the room. Oh, my God. Freddie stood up and challenged him, telling him he could never do that again. Freddie also demanded that Percy divorced Edith. And Percy told him to leave, and he needed need to pack up and go. Unfortunately, Freddie had to do this. Edith and Freddie continued their affair outside of the home. From September 1921 until September 1922, Freddie was back at sea, returning every six weeks. Edith's only lifeline to him were her frequent love letters, which she wrote nearly daily. Percy suspected that something was up, but he could never prove what was going on. I'm going to read an excerpt from one of Edith's letters. When you shook my hand on Saturday, I felt sick with pain. That was all you and I could do. Just imagine shaking hands when we are all and everything and each other to each other. Two halves not yet united. A lot of people have read her letters back and say that she was an extremely good writer and she wrote in a very literary style. The letters were very romantic due to the influences of Edith's love of romantic novels and they were very idealistic but they did start to become a little macabre at times. She was a great writer and she wrote incredibly insightful reviews of the books she and Freddie were reading with character synopsis and detailed ideas of storylines. She told Freddie everything, including her period schedule, 
erotic fantasies and fantasies of killing her husband by poisoning Percy. She also said that she thought of grinding up a light bulb and putting the glass into his potatoes. How romantic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Freddie knew these were just fantasies, and she said this is her outlet to write these things out. The letters are very telling about how miserable her day-to-day life was with Percy. She writes, we're both going to fight until we win, darling. Fight hard. In real earnest, you are going to help me first, and then I'm going to help you. And when you have done your share, and I will have done mine, we shall have given to each other what we both desire most in the world, ourselves. This isn't right. But darling, don't fail in your share of the bargain because I am helpless without your help. You understand. She goes on to talk about how she can't leave Percy and Percy absolutely refuses to give her a divorce despite her telling him she no longer loved him and she was extremely unhappy in the marriage. Percy said to her that everything changed when she met Freddie. But again, he still couldn't prove anything. No, there is a website I'll mention at the end where you can read 70 of uh, Edith's letters. I read all of them and they are uh, risque at times, but she mentions in almost every letter about how unhappy she is with Percy and about how Percy, she's literally tells him all the time. I don't love you. And he's just, and he won't, he won't give up the marriage. What? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it was different times back then. I and different times, but also Percy was never going to let her leave the marriage. That's just what it was going to be. In another letter, she said, "Yesterday, I met a woman who lost three husbands in eleven years, and not through the war. Two were drowned, and one committed suicide. And some people I know can't lose one." <laughs> oh, burn. <laughs> Freddie began to get concerned about the level of intensity of Edith's letters. They were very passionate, and he was worried that it wasn't good for her. His letters began to try to dissuade her from liking him, and they became more and more infrequent. This obviously very much upset Edith. But when Freddie returned from sea in 1922, their passion reignited, and it overwhelmed all other concerns. It was days before Freddie was to return to sea when on October 3rd, 1922, when the Thompsons attended a performance at the Criterion Theater in London's Piccadilly Circus, and they were on their way walking home just before midnight when a man jumped out from behind the bushes of their home and attacked Percy. After a violent struggle, during which Edith was brutally knocked to the ground, Percy was stabbed. Edith was screaming for help from her neighbors. A doctor came, but Percy bled out and died in the street. The neighbors recalled hearing her screaming hysterically, no, don't, no, stop, please don't, several times. And she was in a state of shock when the police arrived. She was taken home, and the next morning she was questioned by police. She originally did not tell the police that she saw the person who did it, and was taken to the police station for further questioning. She was clearly in distress. Yeah, for sure. She did end up telling the police that she knew who the killer was after hours and hours of interrogation. They had already brought Freddie in for questioning, but lied to both of them to see who would confess first or find out if they were working together. They even had them pass each other in the hallway to put further stress on the couple. She then named Freddie Bywaters as the killer. She believed believed that she was just a witness in all of this and didn't think that they thought of her as a suspect. So she told them everything about the affair and all the things that happened. They arrested Freddie and upon the search of his home, they found over 70 letters from Edith. Now believing her to be an accomplice, They arrested Edith as well. The letters were the only thing that linked her to the murder. Freddie maintained that Edith did not know what he had planned and that she was innocent in all of this. His clothing had blood on them, and he provided police with the murder weapon while cooperating completely. 
He said that the plan was just to confront Percy and force him to see what the situation really was, saying, why don't you agree to a separation or divorce? Then Edith and I can be together. You know that's what's going to make her happy. Percy became extremely agitated, and there was a tussle. In Freddie's original interview, he said Percy threatened him with a gun, though no gun was ever found, and they did not believe him in that at all. Percy's body had numerous stab wounds. The attack on Belgrade Road had resulted in eight wounds to his side, another along his arm, more cuts on his chin and jaw, but it was the three deep wounds around his neck that proved to be his fatal blows. It was a frenzied and violent attack, a crime of passion. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is, it's not funny that he died, but of course not, but it's literally like one of her romance novels. Yes. Like it's playing out. Like I'm reading a book with Fabio on the cover. Exactly. That is not what Percy looked like, and you will see. <laughs> I mean, maybe it would be what Freddie looked like. Uh, I mean, they were not terrible-looking men. They really weren't. And Edith was beautiful. Okay, back to the story. <laughs> the press had a field day, and they became famous nationally quickly. The trial was highly publicized. Edith's counsel encouraged her to not to testify. But by now, Edith seemed to enjoy the limelight and told the papers she would give a testimony. It proved to be damning, just like her letters. She came across flirtatious, self-pitying, and melodramatic. She contradicted her stories often and occasionally answered, I have no idea, in response to questions relating to the meaning of passages in her letters. Mm. This reflected poorly on the jury and judge. It is important to note that the judge was a garbage person. I'm going to explain why. Oh, I thought you meant like a no, garbage man. He wasn't, like <laughs> he wasn't like a judge with a side garbage job. <laughs> I literally thought that's <laughs> what you meant for a moment. And I'm like, wow, he's really, really career driven. <laughs> he was described as old school, even in the 20s, and was considered to be practically Victorian. He only referred to her as the adulterer. When he was talking about her, also, there were women on the jury and he only referred to the jury as gentlemen. Yeah. No, thank you. The misogynistic asshole. Yes. (laughs) The notes that he made at the trial have survived. He was clearly against her from the very beginning. And when the court heard how Edith had written about her great love, he scribbled great love. No, unwholesome nonsense. So Edith had a lot stacked up against her. Her counsel said it was her arrogance and vanity in her testimony, though, that did destroy any chance of an acquittal. It completely negated the fact that there were so many positive testimonies from neighbors and many people that said that she was crying out in horror when Percy was stabbed. The police also noted that she was in a genuine state of shock, saying, oh, God, why did he do it? I never wanted him to do it. Both Edith and Freddie said that she was completely unaware that Freddie had planned to even confront Percy. In discussing the letters, Freddie said that he believed that Edith had never made an attempt on her husband's life and that she had a very vivid imagination and was fueled by the novels that she enjoyed reading. They did a postmortem on him and there was no signs that he had had any poisoning or glass light bulbs in his potatoes. (laughs) I'm pretty sure he probably would have noticed that one. Yeah. So it didn't, it didn't, there wasn't a suspicion that she may have tried to do that to him beforehand. On December 11th, the jury came back with a verdict of guilty for both of the lovers and they were sentenced to death by hanging. Edith became hysterical and started screaming. Then Freddie started shouting that she was innocent and had nothing to do with this. He was heartbroken that his lover was going to die because he made this decision. The media actually found sympathy for these young lovers. They praised Freddie for protecting Edith during the entire trial. And Edith was thought of to be beautiful, but often a little bit of an overly dramatic dreamer. 
Over 1 million people signed a petition against the imposed death sentences. Oh, wow. Yeah. No woman had been executed in Britain since 1907. Despite the petition, the home security, William Bridgman, did not extend a reprieve. A few days before the executions, Edith had hoped that she might be acquitted, and she, had, she still held on to hope. But when she was told the date was fixed, she lost her composure, screaming, crying, moaning, and completely stopped eating. Because of her agitated state, they sedated her. What? Yes. She remained very upset, even though she was heavily sedated. On January 9th, 1923, in Holloway Prison, Edith was carried to the scaffold, where she had to be held up to get the noose around her neck. Freddie was only about a half mile away at Pentonville Prison, and at 9 a.m., they were hung simultaneously. Their bodies were buried in mass graves at the prisons they were executed in. It's not sad. That makes me real. I mean, Freddie, Freddie's a murderer, but I'm really thinking yeah, here he that he murdered. <laughs> yes, I'm really thinking that Edith had no idea. Well, Ethel Graydon, Edith's mother's last wish was that her body could be buried with them in their family plot. In 2018, her wish was granted by the government and they gave the executed Edith Thompson perhaps the only scrap of justice that was left available to her. Let me repeat that. In 2018. What? Yes. Wow. After the Ministry of Justice allowed for the exhumation, Edith's mortal remains were laid to rest in the grave of her mother and father in the city of London Cemetery, 95 years after William Graydon, her father, kissed his daughter on the eve of her execution and promised, you will be home at last tomorrow. Oh. Her hanging really took a toll on everyone who worked at the prison at the time. Seeing her in the state that she was in and so heavily sedated traumatized her hangman, John Ellis who was convinced she might have been saved at the last minute. And he had to prop her body up to get her in the noose. He resigned in 1924, just months after she was hung. And he committed suicide a few years later. Oh my God. Yeah. That is so sad. It's so sad. Edith Thompson was one of only 17 women hanged in the United Kingdom in the 20th century. It is widely believed that Edith, Edith was innocent of murder and that she was executed for having a relationship outside of marriage, for writing letters to her lover that was seen as highly immoral and disgraceful of the time. She was on trial and paid the ultimate price of women's morality in the 1920s misogynistic society. My sources were the show Murder Maps, murderpedia.org, edithjessethompson.co.uk, where you can actually read all of her letters, and capitalpunishmentuk.org. Wow, that was such a great story. Right? I was wrapped up in it. I was so just, it's I'm, a whirlwind, right? Yeah, I, I'm going to read those letters. I know, it feels like a book. It really did. It, it really felt like a book. That was so crazy. Right? I... I'm not kidding. I just was like reading every, everything that I possibly could. And I was so taken back by the fact that she wanted out of a marriage and couldn't leave the marriage. Yes. Per Percy was murdered, but she had no way out, but she was never guilty. That's the worst part of it all. Right. It wasn't like a planned situation between her and Freddie. No, she did say things in her letters, like I read, where she almost was encouraging him to do something about it. She didn't state what it would be or anything like that, but she did encourage him to do something. I don't know that she ever expected that he would murder him. And like she was saying, I didn't, I didn't want him to do it, you know? Right. Well, in that situation, if he murdered him, then she couldn't be with either of them. Yeah, I, I'm just, I was taken aback by the whole thing because I felt like she was hung even though she was innocent 
And all she did was fall in love with someone else. And because of the time period and that shitty ass judge, that's what happened. Over 1 million people came together to write a petition saying she didn't need to die. Yeah. But that judge was never going to change his mind. No way. Not at all. Not at all. He wanted to punish her and show everyone that this is what happens to brazen flapper girls. And he used her as an example. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what he did. It makes me so sad. And the, and I wonder, you know, like, especially as I research more and more of these older um, cases, so many of them are women that just have no way out. Women that di- you weren't as lucky as Edith to have a career or mm-hmm. to have any education or any way to get out of these marriages, you know, and mm-hmm. Percy was, yes, he was boring, but he also beat her, you know, in that way. Right. Yeah. So it's not like, you know, he was, he was an angel and she really wanted out of the marriage. The, the, the letter, she literally says, I told him again, I don't love you anymore. I don't want to be in this marriage. And he would not let her go. That is just heartbreaking. Tragic. <laughs> yes. And her letters are very steamy. So I'm just going to full well warn you. There's talks of orgasms and period. Wow, that's well, super racy for back then. Yes. But it's all written in, in, in the style of her, like a literary style. So it feels like it's a, you know, a, a romance novel. You'll see. I'll send you the link. But I'm very excited to read these. <laughs> I was too. I was too. It was like, you got a little sneak peek into the whole thing. But anyway, that is the story of Edith Thompson, 1920s, modern woman struck down by some misogynistic a-holes. Yes. Wow. <laughs> I loved that. All right. So we will take a break and hear from our sponsors and we'll be back with Autumn to hear her story. And we are back. So Autumn, I know that this week you have adults murdering adults. Yes. <laughs> and I am so relieved. I yes. know, I know you do the ones with the children, partly because you don't want them to be forgotten and that people need to hear their stories and mm-hmm. the change. I mean, and a lot of the ones that you've talked about have real changes that came from them, that right? Affected our laws and affected, mm-hmm. um, you know, charities and things like that. And I mean, we were close to their age or around their age when those stories happened. So I remember hearing about them when we were younger and yeah. being like, what? Oh my God. Yeah. No, I mean, I appreciate that you do them, but I am really happy to have. I know. <laughs> I know. It, grown it's humans a, murdering grown humans. Yes. It's a, it's a grown human kind of day. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I'm going to get right on in. And this one is the murder of Shannon Moore. Okay. Shannon Moore was born on September 1st. 1954 in Toledo, Ohio. She was born into a devout Catholic family. Growing up, she always thought she would become a nun. She had the perfect personality for it. Very caring and compassionate. One of three children born to Robert and Lucille Moore. She was very close to her family. Shannon decided she would like to marry and have a family over becoming a nun and went into nursing instead. This career choice was suited for her and she thrived. In the summer of 1979, Shannon was 24 years old and recently single, having ended her relationship with a local firefighter. She was complaining to her mother about having to go to her friend's wedding solo. Her mother gently encouraged her to go, suggesting she might even meet someone at the wedding. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) Dun, dun, dun. Shannon went to the wedding and just like her mother suggested, she met someone. Are you ready for this name? (laughs) I think so. David Richard Davis was a 30. I know super creative name there. David Davis. (laughs) Yeah. Was a 35 year old self described millionaire who was oh, recently self described self described millionaire. Okay. okay. 
who was recently single, his fiance had died in a car crash. He couldn't be any more perfect for her. He owned several farms across the country. He had been a football player for the University of Michigan. He even played in the Rose Bowl and graduated with a psychology degree. Oh, wow. Her heart went out to him for his fiance. And she also learned that he was an orphan and a Vietnam veteran. He had been injured in the war. Oh, wow. Oh, we both have war connections. Yes. <laughs> I, when you were talking about that, I was like, oh, there we are. <laughs> Shannon's nurse heart felt she had finally met Mr. Wright. Her family was taken with him as well. Everyone was so happy for the young couple. Only eight weeks after meeting, shortly after Shannon had turned 25, they eloped to Las Vegas and married. Oh my goodness. Eight days after their wedding, Davis took out a $220,000 life insurance policy out on his new bride. (laughs) Red flags. Red flags everywhere. No prenup. I just want a life insurance policy on you. No. And he's, I mean, how suspicious is that? You're a millionaire. Why the hell do you need a $220,000 life insurance policy on your your wife? wife? Mm -mm. (laughs) Nope. Mm -mm. Red flags. (laughs) Yes. Shannon moved with him to his 100 acre farm in Pittsford, Michigan. While he grew corn and soybeans, Shannon got a job at the local hospital. The couple seemed to be settling into married life together and were very happy. On July 23rd, 1980, Shannon and Dave took their horses for a ride to visit their neighbor, Dick Britton. They visited for a while and Dave helped Dick repair some farm equipment. They said their goodbyes and the couple started the ride home. According to Britton, Davis came back a short time later, frantic and alone. He told his neighbor that Shannon had lost control of her horse and fell off, violently hitting her head on the ground. Like what? 10 times? <laughs> it does, he didn't say that. He just said he violently hitting her head on the ground. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Davis took Britain to Shannon and upon reaching the accident site, he observed that she was laying on her back. Oh. Her shoes were off. Her blouse was unbuttoned. And there was blood on a nearby rock. Mm, That feels like a a set, like a staged scene. Right. Also very suspicious. Yeah, David Davis. Shannon was rushed to the hospital, but was pronounced dead on arrival. Lucille and Robert Moore arrived at the hospital to comfort their son-in-law and say their goodbyes to their daughter. Oh, no. It just like breaks my heart. I know. I mean, that part got me. Yeah. The Moors noticed that Davis's arm was covered in scratches and he was visibly upset. He wasted no time in letting them know that he intended to honor Shannon's wishes by cremating her. And collecting the insurance money. (laughs) Horrified, her parents begged him to reconsider and let her be buried in Toledo. They knew with her being a devoted Catholic, She would never have wanted to be cremated. I was going to say, yeah. It took some convincing, but he eventually relented and agreed for her to be buried in Toledo and not be cremated. That's a good thing. Mm -hmm. At the hospital, he dropped a bomb on her parents. He told them that he couldn't afford to pay for a funeral for their daughter, that all his money was tied up in the farms and that he did not have an insurance policy on Shannon. They agreed to pay for her funeral expenses. Later that evening, Lucille remembered that her daughter had let her know that after their honeymoon, Davis had taken out a life insurance policy on her. Why would he lie about not having a policy on her now? I don't know. But you know what gets me is when you said earlier, self-described millionaire. I was like, "Mm -hmm, mm -hmm." Mm mm-hmm. Yeah, bro. Yeah. Cool story. Sure. (laughs) Three days later, Shannon's funeral was held. Dave Davis seemed unmoved and had little emotion. This was upsetting to her parents. I'm sure. 
while at the funeral, the Moors were shocked to meet Davis's parents. Had they not met before? As he had told them and their daughter that he was an orphan. What? The surprises kept coming for her parents. When his very much alive parents also informed them that not only was their son not wounded in Vietnam, he was never in the military at all. He was also not a millionaire and he was married before and was the father to two daughters. Oh my God. What? Yes. This is crazy. I know. Suspicion began to grow for her family. Yeah. Who, who, <laughs> who was this man that their daughter had married? It only got worse from there. No. Two days after her funeral, six different insurance agencies contacted the funeral home for her death certificate. In all, Davis was to receive over $330,000 in life insurance benefits from the death of his wife. Oh my God. That would be over $1 million in today's money. Oh my God. During this time, he had left for a trip to Florida with another woman. Of course he did. Mm-hmm. Her parents questioned him about this, but he insisted this woman was just a friend. Mm-hmm. Despite the red flags, the local authorities declared Shannon's death an accident and closed the case. No. Her family began to dig a bit more into his past and discovered two insurance payouts from two fires on his farm. Shannon's parents pushed for their daughter's body to be exhumed for an autopsy. After a lengthy process, this was granted in August of 1980. I am so happy about that. Thank God they fought for that. And that they didn't cremate her. Yeah. The medical examiner determined that her injuries were in fact consistent with a fall from her horse. But there was one thing. He discovered that there was an unknown drug in her system. Despite this finding, he still ruled her death an accident. And her parents were left with more questions then answers once again. That is upsetting. It's really upsetting. Well, I, and what was this unknown drug? I mean, he could have drugged her and then hoped that she was going to fall off the horse. Right. Mm. Dave Davis sold his Michigan farm and moved to the Bahamas on a boat with his new girlfriend. Mm-hmm. The autopsy findings allowed him to collect on several smaller life insurance policies he had taken out on his new bride. Shannon's story caught the interest of a journalist named Billy Bowles. He wrote an article exposing all of his insurance frauds, lies about his life, and mentioned the unknown drug that was found in Shannon's system. It was a break her family was looking for because it brought attention to the situation and law enforcement reopened her case. Yes. They can't ignore it now. No. One of the investigators contacted a toxicologist. The investigator told him about Davis being a dirt farmer and having large animals on his farm. The toxicologist suggested that the investigator contact some local veterinarians to see if maybe they had worked with Davis in the past to see if there was any connections. This proved to be vital. One veterinarian told him about a drug named succinylcholine. It was basically an animal tranquilizer. It's used for short-term paralysis. It is a skeletal muscle relaxant, usually used with anesthesia. It paralyzes every muscle, but the heart, And it makes it impossible to breathe without the use of a ventilator. Oh my God. The investigator relayed this information to the toxicologist. And it was determined that the drug found in Shannon Davis's blood was one and the same. They had, I know. It just makes me so sad because you just think about, you know, mm -hmm. she was paralyzed when she fell. If they had, right. They had also recently learned that Dave Davis had gone on a deer hunting trip a few years back and the technique they used to kill the deer was using this drug. There we go. Mm -hmm. 
Shannon's body was ordered to be exhumed for a second time. Upon examining her body, they found two injection marks, one on her shoulder and one on her wrist. Oh my God. Armed with this evidence on October 13th, 1981, a little over a year after her death, a grand jury issued a first degree murder indictment for David Richard Davis. They believed that he had pushed or coaxed her off of her horse, wrestled her to the ground, and used the drug to paralyze her, and then delivered the fatal blow with the rock to her head to make this look like an accidental fall off of her horse, to be able to collect on the insurance policies that he had taken out. What a piece of shit. Right? Like, go to hell. Yeah. The authorities went to capture Davis, who was now living in Haiti but he had already fled, leaving behind the boat he had been living on. Mm -hmm. Now, this is the part that is kind of like my dream. Like, I hope that I am able to do this one day. (laughs) Um, what, what is it? (laughs) I know. Um, (laughs) Eight long years later, he was still on the run from authorities. When an episode of unsolved mysteries aired on December, (laughs) December 28th, 1988 for the second time a woman living in american samoa recognized the man on the run as david meyer bell when he was arrested on january 6 1989 he was living with his 23 year old wife in a one-room shack oh my he god had, he had I've told had the biggest eye roll right now <laughs> i know he had told his wife that his previous wife had died in a terrible accident. Mm -hmm. Davis had been living there since 1984. During his time on the run, he had pretended to be a doctor, a nurse, and he actually earned his flying certification, making him an actual pilot. Oh my God. He had lived in Florida, the Caribbean, Alaska, and Hawaii. Wow. That's a very diverse climates. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Three weeks after his arrest, he was brought back to Michigan to stand trial for the murder of Shannon Davis. Mm -hmm. On December 5th, 1989, after only two hours of deliberation, the jury found him guilty of first degree murder and was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Davis maintained he was innocent and that she had died in an accident. The prosecution theorizes that Davis got Shannon off her horse with the notion of them getting intimate, which would explain why the neighbor reported her not having any shoes on and her blouse being unbuttoned Mm -hmm. that he then injected her with the drug and she fought back. And those scratches on his arm that her parents observed at the hospital were from her. Yeah. They believe he used a rock to hit her over the head ending her life and making it look like an accident to collect on insurance. Sadly, I know it's like you, you asshole. Yeah. (laughs) Sadly, Moore's parents have passed away. Lucille in 2008 and Robert in 2012. They did, however, have her headstone redone to remove her married last name and replaced it with her maiden last name. That's good. They also were awarded the life insurance money that Davis had murdered their daughter in cold blood to obtain. You know, it's not, it doesn't feel like justice. No. But I am glad that that happened. I've got goosebumps right now. I know. David Richard Davis died in prison on November 9th, 2014 at the age of 70 from a neuromuscular disease. Oh, interesting. He got his comeuffins because (laughs) she was injected with a muscular paralyzing drug. Yeah. And he died from a neuromuscular disease. Interesting. Never confessing to her murder. That is just so crazy. And how many insurances, you know, life insurance policies that he take, he took out on her. 
quite a few. They didn't name the exact amount, but all in all, it was over $330,000 worth. Yeah. It's just crazy to me. And that he got away with it for so long. Yeah. He was on the run. I mean, at first they were going to just close the cases and then he was on the run after they went looking for him for eight years. And that's Autumn's dream is to yes. a murderer on yes. the street. I'm telling you right now. As soon yes. as I was like, oh, there it is. Yep. Because <laughs> like, I, I can totally see you just be like, Aaron, oh my God, I'm, I see this guy walking down the street. I'm yes. sure he's from he episode, looks, yes. episode three, season 65 of <laughs> I mean, I'm keeping it in my memory bank. Okay. <laughs> Real though. And what you guys don't know is that Autumn is very good at finding people. Oh yes. Very, even very kidding. good. Yes. Like, very good. <laughs> Have I told the Danny Bonaducci story? No. So I was on a, I was taking a boat up or the clipper up to Canada for a family vacation. And I was with my daughter. We were waiting in line for the restroom and this guy was standing right next to us to waiting for the bathroom. He let us go ahead since I had small human and she's adorable. And he, um, he, I just, as soon as I heard his voice, I was like, Oh, I know this. I know this person. Where do I know him from? And I text autumn and said, you know, I, I swear to God, either Danny Bonaducci's doppelganger is on this boat or it's Danny Bonaducci just like right here next to me. And within minutes, she was like, Oh no, it's definitely him. He now lives in Seattle and he has, he has a radio show and he's, and he's like, she had a whole thing. It was so funny. It, well, I, then I was like, uh, yeah. And I went to his son's Instagram and there was a picture of him and his son on the clipper with the Seattle background behind him. And I was like, yeah, that's definitely him. He's on the boat with you right now. That is so <laughs> crazy. And then we saw him the whole weekend. And then on the way back, he was in line with us. Like the whole time he was super duper nice, very, very polite and very, very sweet. He was with <laughs> his true. wife. He, he was, he was very nice. I, I don't know a lot about Danny Bonaduce, but I know enough to know his voice. The moment I was right there, I was like, Oh my God. True. And then you turn to me to find him back. Autumn will always find people. I could send yes. her a picture and be like, Hey, uh, whatever happened to that one guy? She's like, I'll tell you in five, five, five minutes. Yeah. Just give and me then, a couple and minutes. Give me the full, full life. <laughs> I just a good friend to have. <laughs> yes. If you're ever in the need, it's my uh, I'm not so secret talent. <laughs> yeah. Basically a detective. Yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, my sources were Marrying for Murder by Lori Johnston, Unsolved Mysteries, of course, mm-hmm. Forensic Files. And if you thought this sounded like a made-for-TV movie. They did make a movie out of this story in 1993 named Victim of Love, the Shannon Moore story, which of course it was on Lifetime. (laughs) And of course I've watched it. And that is what stemmed my memory of this story to begin with. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was, I I love that both of us seem to have like almost like faded love stories. Yes. Like she was, she was happy to find the love of her life when she was 25 was going to settle down, have kids. She didn't want to. And then yours was all about the passion. I had a love triangle. (laughs) Yes. Passion. And the passion. (laughs) (laughs) I really enjoyed that story though. I really did. Yeah. I liked both of these. I thought both of these cases were, were good tonight. And I liked, I mean, I'm telling you, I thoroughly enjoyed writing mine. (laughs) I'm not even joking. Way too much fun giggling to myself. (laughs) Well, I really liked it. I'm glad that you bring the old timey crime. I'm always going to bring the old timey crime. I really (laughs) think like I'm going to start capping it like the seventies because you pretty much do like eighties, nineties to now Mm -hmm. a lot more. And then, I mean, a lot of times Autumn will text me and say, Hey, what year is yours from? That way we're not giving as much away. And I can say, oh, it's from the forties. So it's Mm -hmm. it's like new time crimey for me because I have done a lot of late 1800s. But the funny thing is, is that mine, there, there was no Wikipedia or murderpedia at all. So I had to kind of put myself a little bit in your shoes and do a lot more research. 
Yeah. That's kind of crazy that there wasn't. I know. I fully expected them to have at least a Wikipedia or a murderpedia, but it was a lifetime movie. Come on. A lifetime (laughs) movie. America's most wanted American justice, forensic files. Yeah. All these, all All of these hitters. Yeah. All the big hitters and not, not even a murderpedia. That's crazy. So crazy, but good old unsolved mysteries. Good old unsolved mysteries (laughs) for life. They came through big time. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, because that's how he got caught. Yeah, for sure. He probably didn't think Unsolved Mysteries was the greatest, but I sure did. (laughs) I feel like I feel like you're going to start rewatching it all and then just start (laughs) staring at people out and about. I mean, I already do that. I pull up America's Most Wanted all the time to make sure I don't know them. You just for every person you meet. Not every person, (laughs) but if you look sketch, I might be pulling up America's Most Wanted being like, "Mm, just want to make sure you're not on the top 10. That is so funny. (laughs) And it is legit. (laughs) Yes, I will find you. (laughs) That's your new catchphrase. I will find you. Yeah. Just, just keep that in mind. <laughs> oh my well, this was another really fun episode. Um, new episodes will come out every Saturday. Uh, please do follow us on Instagram. You can also find us on our website, which is www.murdernotmurdering.com. And we will post pictures from both of our stories. So you can kind of get a more of a behind the scenes look at what, you know, what they looked like and get an idea. There are pictures of all three, Percy sitting next to Edith and Freddie laying in her lap. Oh, okay. I I need to see these two. (laughs) It's, I mean, there's, and there's so many pictures. It's fantastic that I have that. It's a lot of times. So, I mean, we've haven't had one, one or two where it was just a sketch yeah. You know, so it's mm-hmm. it's nice to have all of the, the photographs because it really gets you more um, connected to the case. Yeah. Because Grace Marks, there was only sketches. There was only sketches. Yeah. Well, anyway, this was a great episode. Um, we'll be back again next Saturday. Thank you so much for listening and supporting us. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.